It's the BBP TV show since 2012, where amazing guests share their digital adventures. Who will we meet today? Small biz influencer? Up and coming trendsetter? Accomplished author? You never know who'll be dropping by. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay, the bionic glamourpreneur with Truel Social Media, who's the second most curious person on the planet. Today's guest to me is quite special. Robin Blackburn McBride is the author of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, she's a coach in personal transformation. She has been in a number of different fields. She spent 20 years in education as an institutional teacher, I think is how she uh, puts it, at Branksome Hall in Toronto. Now, as a transformational coach, she helps individuals discover their true purpose and design and live their lives in harmony with it. She is very much into vision and creativity. And as she was a passionate teacher and creativity expert, her books actually relate to that. Her self-help book, Bird Light, Freeing Your Authentic Creativity, became an Amazon bestseller in 2016. It's since been released as both a paperback and as a, an audio book. Her volume of poetry, which is called In Green, came out in 2002, and it was uh, put out by Gunica Press. Her latest novel, which is her debut novel, Shining Fragments uh, was recognized by the Historical Novel Society in North America as an editor's choice book. Robin's currently at work on a sequel. In her service as an author, coach, and guide, Robin regards dreams as portals to the soul. And it's that that we're going to explore today. That and a few other things that I think you're going to enjoy. Robin is an incredible storyteller, fabulous teacher, and an incredibly creative and passionate person. So I look forward to our time together today. And so it's awesome for me to be here with my guest, Robin. And we're actually going to quite literally jump right in. <laughs> Robin, hopefully I won't be putting you too much on the hot seat, but I just feel that you have so much you can share. Uh, we, I've talked about the fact that you're an author, you're a coach, you introduced me to the word multi-potentialite, which oh, I believe excellent. you absolutely are, and uh, <laughs> all, of, all of that being said, let's kind of go back to your beginning. Because although I've known you for a few years, you're not originally from the Ottawa area. Mm -hmm. So why not give us a little bit of background? Well, I am definitely, huh, I would have to say a Toronto girl. <laughs> that is where I hail from. I mean, yeah, I lived in Toronto. <laughs> yes, I know that uh, you and I are both from both from that neck of the woods. And it's been so interesting to be on a journey in the last few years of living in a whole new community. I never left my hometown growing up. So I wasn't like one of those um, young people who goes off and goes to university away. And um, 
my dad was a teacher at the University of Toronto. He was a professor there for, uh, gosh, I think he was there for over 40 years. Wow. It was kind of a fait accompli <laughs> that I was going to be going to U of T. And um, yeah, so it, it, that was kind of funny because when my, I'm going off on a tangent, I realize, but I will bring us back to Ottawa. Um, when, when I was growing up, I thought, well, there's one way that I can distinguish myself and that is go to a completely different college than anybody else in my family. <laughs> so that's what I did. And then of course, when my brother came along, what did he do? He picked my college. So there you go. <laughs> but I, I grew up there and loved the city. Um, I, you know, it's, it's where I built my life when I was a young woman. I was acting there. I mean, that was really not a city to move away from. And then when I went into education, of course, uh, the Faculty of Education uh, was right there. Um, my first teaching job was a Toronto job. It turned out to be a 20-year gig. Uh, married there, was raised my, my daughter there. And so really have a lot of deep love of that city, uh, fascination for the history of that place. As you know, Elaine, uh, my novel, The Shining Fragments, is set in historical Toronto. I have since childhood had a passion for the history of the city. I moved to Ottawa in 2016, Ottawa Gatineau. And uh, I, in that, at that time, was on a journey really that I think a lot of people can relate to. It was an elder care journey. Uh, I came to help my aunt and uncle in the la what were the last months of their lives, frankly. And I was really a kind of like a daughter to them. So um, that was that was something that was really important to me. And uh, that was basically what brought me here. Now, curiously, I want to go back for a moment. Yeah as Robin continues to perpetuate the conversation without Elaine talking. <laughs> that's a nice change. back to you in a minute. No, that's but, a nice change for people, I'm sure. <laughs> Just noticing. Um, it's funny because uh, when I was a kid, you know, had I not been accepted at U of T, for whatever reason, my number two was Carlton. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I loved Ottawa. I used to visit my uncle when I was a little girl. I used to come and visit my aunt and uncle uh, as a teenager. And I, I don't know, for some reason I found, you're going to laugh at this, but I found Ottawa really exotic. <laughs> really, <laughs> really, yeah, I could be my wild free self in Ottawa for some reason. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with my aunt who uh, really encouraged that in me when I came here and kind of spoiled me rotten. So living here is a pleasure. And it's funny because way back, I guess I must have known intuitively that my path would take me here. And increasingly, what am I doing? I'm falling in love with the history of Ottawa. I'm spending my days, you know, I'm researching my next novel and I'm spending my days in the museums. This is just an amazing center in our country for culture. So I'm a very happy camper. Well, I so love to hear that because there is an incredibly rich history in Ottawa and um, actually also Aboriginal history, mm -hmm. which may not be something 
you know about, but there's actually uh, what they call indigenous walks that take you to all the places. It's like a museum walking, takes you to all the places that actually relate to our indigenous peoples, which is really incredible and really gives you a different perspective on the whole city. Wow. That's that something to be think on about. my list for 2020. That is definitely, you've given me something to add to my growing list of <laughs> things that I am doing in 2020 for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it'll really suit you. Um, you'll really grow with that. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the fact that you, you do love the history and it's not just Toronto. I, I think history is, is a big passion of yours. Oh. And I want to get into the fact that The Shining Fragments is actually about a young boy who comes mm -hmm. from Ireland. And in mm -hmm. fact, you went to Ireland while writing this book. Yes, I did. And we're going back, you know, we're going back to the first time I went to, well, now Northern Ireland, um, the book is, begins in 1882, so it was Ireland, but the, uh, the county of Armagh um, in Ulster, 2003 was the first year that I made the journey over to research. Um, that was, you know, I often share this in talks that it was just this, probably the most profound experience of synchronicities that I had yet experienced. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have had those experiences since, but this was a really strangely perfect series of events that lined up and, uh, you know, came together, uh, culminating in me going over there, spending a couple of weeks there, staying at one point with the former curator of the Armagh County Museum, which was so perfect. Um, walking a hill that I very much, I mean, I just know in my bones, I have a connection to that place, um, to Navin, to that little area um, just outside the city of Armagh. And in fact, it was interesting because when I, um, when I met my current husband, I mean, my husband now, um, <laughs> that didn't Hopefully come out right. And you know future, I mean. yes. <laughs> when I met Hugh, uh, he, he, it turned out that his family was from a house at the end of a particular little bridge, a very distinctive bridge, visually, in a place that is about this big. It's called Tassa, and in fact, I had driven right by it. Wow. He hasn't been there yet. We have to go. Oh, wow. Yeah, but, uh, you know, so lots of things coming together. But I went to Ireland twice. I went to Northern Ireland twice to do the research for Joseph. It was very important for me that not only I, you know, not only did I go there and, and research, um, I interviewed people, I spent time um, in about three museums, I think, but I spent a fair deal of time walking the land. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say that for me as a writer, that's a really important practice that you walk uh, you don't always have to be in the setting of your novel, but that you connect in nature. And for me, being on that land seemed to allow a lot through. Um, the last, 
actually the, the whole entire ending of the book came to me in 2005 when I was sitting under an ash tree at Navin Fort. Navin Fort's an old hill fort. Yeah. So it's a, it's a sacred site that's actually a pre-Celtic yes. sacred site, but the Celts built on it. And uh, I was very, very focused on inviting the vision of the ending of that novel. So back before I was a vision coach, I was certainly working with vision as a writer. That's, that's a really good point. And it's interesting that Navin is just down the road from where we are right now. Yes. The <laughs> Canadian segment yes. of Navin. Yes, that's just right. Just down the road. Yeah. And it, it, I can see your passion. I know anyone who talks to you can see your passion. And I have to say that, that I took the time to go to one of Robin's workshops and I was so pleasantly surprised to have her literally pull us in from our seats. I have to say, Robin, you are uh -huh. an excellent speaker, but more than that, it was a whole experience. And I, I think we can certainly um, attribute some of that to your acting background, which mm. I don't think you talk a lot about. So why not give us just a little snippet of how that came about? Hmm. You know, it's so funny when you said that. Well, first of all, let me say thank you. That means a lot to me, Elaine. Uh, I, I love the workshops that I deliver. I love the people who come out. I love what we create together. And I love to be able to offer every single person in the room an opportunity to connect with themselves, with their soul. That's what the anything I do is about. It's about that. It's about really that um, beautiful unique energy signature that each one of us carries in this life. And it's about fulfilling that sense of mission. So um, thank you for that. The, um, the acting background, when you said that, what, <laughs> I just want to be, I don't know, I want to tell you a funny story. Oh, please. So there was a production of Othello happening at Hart House, and this was in 1986. It was early in 1986. And I had, uh, as an undergraduate, I'd had the, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, good fortune. <laughs> when I think about my early techniques of auditioning, um, I, I wouldn't be writing a book recommending some of the techniques I used. Uh, I actually probably could write a book on that. One of the techniques uh, led to my first marriage. <laughs> oh, there you <laughs> That's go. That's a story for another time. <laughs> and yet another book. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, I so wanted to play Desdemona. Okay, so here you go. Here's a little coaching thing, right? So what did I do? The, the, the wonderful director, I mean, God bless him. He was 10 years older than I was. These guys, most of the people doing these shows, they were already all in their 30s and, and some of them even in their 40s. And I was about 21. So um, I wanted to, I got into my head that the best part was Desdemona and I wanted to play Desdemona. Actually, it's not. The best part is Amelia, but you know, yeah. I'm not there yet to figure that out. So, um, you know, I was practically just like doing anything I could in the audition to convince this guy that I was Desdemona. 
and um, that is called push energy. And it's a, it was a wonderful example of absolutely pushing away uh, the thing that I desired, uh, just pushing it right away. But, you know, God bless the director of the play. He, um, he knew I really wanted to be in this production and he gave me the part of, um, oh, the name of the character has gone out of my head, but <laughs> she is known at, exactly, that's about how big the part was. Um, she, is, she is known as the trash of Venice. So there you go. <laughs> that okay. was a summation of my acting career. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, I, yeah. I did, I loved acting all through school. I, I, um, I was really uh, totally Bianca. Bianca, Bianca, you know, ironic okay. name. Um, I, I loved it. I had my heart set on being an actress in Canada. I never visualized myself being in Los Angeles or New York, ever. It was always about the Canadian stage. It was about theater. Um, although I did do my share of auditions for soap commercials and, yeah. and you know, a little bit parts on television. And I did do some of that stuff. Um, but I really had a sincere passion for theater. And that's, that's actually where I thought I was headed. And in fact, people around me in school would have said that about me as well, because I, I was very driven. I did tend to um, earn, you know, lead parts in shows and I would be cast in things at the Graduate Center. And it was when I went out into the big wide world that uh, I really had a wake up call that was so good for my ego. Um, you know, I had to figure out, did I really want this? Mm -hmm. And un you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I was the kind of person who, even in my early 20s, you know, I wanted to play all the parts. Give me Lear. Yeah. You know, like, I'm just like, I can do it. And that's a little bit of the ego, right? <laughs> right, like, I'll do it. And of course, no, what, what, what am I getting cast for? I'm getting cast for the ingenues. But, you know, yeah. that was fine. <laughs> I was happy with those. But ultimately, for me, it ended up not aligning with my core values, actually. Um, I think, and, and that is not to say that acting is, is uh, in any way a negative choice for somebody who who no, is no. totally aligned for it. But what I learned the hard and painful way at that age was that I really wanted more control over my own creative process. And so to be told at 22 by someone, you know, this is who you're, what you're going to do, and this is not what you're going to do. And to, to, it, it felt a lot like I was compromising it wow. felt like what I was being offered was a compromise to begin with. And then if I was lucky enough, I got it kind of thing. And I just, I think what was happening was the writer in me was stepping forward and saying, you know what, honey, when you write the book, you play all the parts. Ooh. Ooh, and and that, good. well, yeah, it sounds really good. I mean, now at this point, <laughs> And it sounds like I yeah. got it all figured out. No, it was really scary. And yeah. because, I mean, you're, ta you're talking with somebody who began writing in closets, literally. Um, I knew as a kid I wanted to be a writer. I was pretty prolific. But when I got into my 20s, when I was married, when I had this little baby who I was raising and then went into education for all kinds of really good practical reasons, 
what happened was I was always doing that little Virginia Woolf thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, not so little. Yeah. Uh, finding a place, finding a little place in the apartment, wherever we were living, a place that could be mine. And literally, we lived in a co-op apartment building in those days on Ontario Street in Toronto. Ah, yes. And we lived in three different units at the Hugh Garner Co-op. And one of the things this co-op was amazing for was storage closets. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, I mean, I converted a couple yep. of storage closets into an office. And even though it was, you know, pretty much hard to breathe, I did start to write in those little closets. And uh, that was a really important phase because I didn't know what I was writing. Uh, I didn't know how I was ever gonna be a writer. I knew, that, I knew that it wasn't gonna be acting. I knew that it was morphing into this other thing, but so much remained to be seen. It, it wouldn't be until a little bit past that phase where I really leaned in and took it seriously, took myself seriously. I think it's very easy as a young woman. So, I mean, I'm being playful with you in this conversation and having fun looking back because why not? I mean, we have to have Absolutely. a sense of humor about everything. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, but I, I, I remember Margaret Atwood, I was reading something by Margaret Atwood once and she said the most difficult period for a woman is the 20s. I don't know, was it like that for you, Elaine? Did you find your 20s challenging? Um, I did, for very different reasons. Yeah. But uh, I missed most of my 20s. Yeah, yeah. Which, which in itself is, is pretty challenging. Right. Well, when I think back to, um, to that time, I just remember not having the confidence to really believe that I could listen to this call inside my heart and follow it. Yeah. It, it was like I could do just about anything but. Yeah. And it took years of work to actually recognize that, you know what, kid, the thing that you thought you were going to be when you ate, you were eight, guess what? You really are that. <laughs> that really is your calling or part of your calling. Yes. And so learning to trust that and to put, it isn't just trusting it. It's learning to put structures underneath it so that there's a system for the energy to pour through productively. And it really wasn't until working on my second book, that I really began to pull together systems. My first book was a book of poetry and poet, poetry is interesting because the usually the period of time that you take on a poem is, you know, it's, it's not on the same scale as what you would take to write a, a, novel. a short story or a novel, certainly. And so I could, in that phase, cobble together poems and, and bring out a volume of poetry. I feel very fortunate that I did that. That was quite a while ago. In 2002, 2002. Yeah, yeah. But this is a different, um, when you're writing extended pieces, it's, it's a whole different foundation that you need 
Oh, absolutely. But it's almost like that was your, that was you trying the water. Yeah. Getting, oh, yeah. Just getting in, getting, getting wet and, and realizing that you could basically swim is, is what it amounts to. Mm-hmm. Yes. And realizing that regardless of the productivity, regardless of the current results, that you become the person in your vision before the vision is fully manifest. That's a really important piece of it. And so a few minutes ago, I mentioned walks when I was in Ireland, when I came back to Toronto, I just walked that city. Um, I walked that city. I walked uh, the ravines. I walked the Don Valley. I walked Cedarvale Ravine countless times. I walked every neighborhood I lived in with that book. I would drive to High Park and I would get out and I would walk the park. I would walk the paths of the characters, walk the beach. Um, It was really important to, in fact, again, I want to say before I became a vision coach, I mean, this was when I was teaching school institutionally, I would say I'm going for a vision walk. And I would take a walk with a journal and I would just allow, I would take the pressure off myself to write anything. And I would just say, I'm just going to allow in what's the next chapter. Just show me, show me the next chapter. And I, I'd go down into the Valley and, you know, I would know when the bench was coming and I'd have a chance to sit with my journal and, and it worked. It with that book, it worked. Every book is a different child. Every book requires a different, structure but it does require the willingness to create a structure and give yourself a command and follow it and actually show up and serve the structure and serve the project so i didn't really learn how to do that until the shining fragments right yeah do you think that your teaching background you know creating structure and and teaching the young how to do that had a a part in making it maybe a little easier for you to create that structure when you were writing? That's a really interesting question. I've never thought of, I think teaching trained me for so many things. Um, And I want to, yeah, I want to clarify that you're saying, you're talking about you know, being an institutional teacher. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I just, I'm so inspired by Marianne Williamson and I just, I love her whole take on teachers. You know, we're all teaching each other. Yes, right? absolutely. So every one of us is a teacher. So yeah, but I know what you mean. You're asking about when that institutional. At Branksome Hall. Yes. <laughs> that time. Yes. Yes. Um, it taught me so many things because, uh, you know, you don't mess with that kind of position. You don't, you, you can't be late for work. No. <laughs> so the no. first, the first thing it probably taught me in my twenties when I started working there was, okay, I'm there and I'm there uh, when I need to be there. And then, you know, I worked there for years when I was a single parent raising my daughter. Um, and it taught me resilience. It taught me the love of community it taught me uh, the value of consistency. 
um, the importance of when you say something, stand behind it. It taught me the importance of picking your battles. It taught me the importance of being inspiring because people need to be inspired. And sometimes, you know, you just make that little bit of difference in somebody's life and you don't know the good that you've done. So I always say that for any of us, right? If that just making that positive comment, um, giving that reinforcement, all of that. So if you take all of that and you turn it to yourself as a creative being and say, okay, I need it for myself as an artist, I need a community. I need inspiration. I need mentoring. Um, I would, I would love to have, you know, when I say I'm going to do something, I follow through. If I take all the values that have been there as I've shown up and served others and I apply them to my project, when we're working with on a project that really is ours, meaning when we're working from a deep place of calling, as I believe a great many of us do, it's important to recognize that that vision that we have is ours to serve. It's no different from a child who walks into your classroom or a teenager who walks into your classroom. It's yours to serve. And that's how seriously you have to take it. That's how seriously you have to take the service to the vision. And as you come back again and again, you see, when I told you that story of me at I don't know, I forget how old I was, 20 or 21. And, and there I was, you know, I want a Desdemona, give me Desdemona. <laughs> so what a ridiculous part to fight for is what I say at this point in my life. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would never want to play that part. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, that was all about ego. That was all about, you know, give me the limelight. Give me the part where I get to be on the stage and I get to be all in the action. Yeah, yeah and, and that part of me, um, you know, it's always fun to have those moments in performance where, you know, we're enjoying it. But what I've had to learn over many years is that we do our best work creatively when it's not about serving the ego at all. It's about serving what's seeking to emerge. And the longer I live, um, the more convinced I am that the right way to go with writing is simply to see the books in print. Yes, there are people who can help spread the word, yes, but get it into print, get it into people's hands. It's about the project. And when I remove myself, and that's one of the ways that those walks can really serve is because when we're in nature, when we're walking with the rhythms of nature, we lose ourselves. We lose all of that pressure that we would otherwise be putting on ourselves. And we're just there showing up one with mother earth. And the ideas start to drop in you put them down, you serve them, you get out of the way. There is a great art to, and I mean, I think as far as I'm concerned, it's a lifelong practice. It's not like any one of us nails it forever. You know, we always have to come back to it, but it's this business of becoming a vessel so that whatever it is that's seeking to emerge really can use you. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's really what I 
desire most in this life is is to be well used well used very well said and and i'd just like to take that nature walk and and that whole bit and and kind of say it it works for everything mm. it's not it doesn't even have to be your deepest passion mm. reconnecting with nature and anybody who knows me knows okay i am bug phobic i don't like anything that's too out there but ever since i was a child and mm. lost myself in downsview dells park daily uh, I have always believed and feel sort of whole when I'm deep in a forest. Mm, yeah. I guess now they call it forest bathing. Yes. In fact, I put a little note about that in my most recent blog. Uh, yes, they call it forest bathing. Um, <laughs> and there's winter forest bathing, Elaine. And yes, you can I be out, you can be bathing in the forest and it can be, you know, 20 below zero, um, it's, you're so right. I, I think it's just important to be with nature, um, period. And of course, cities are nature. Yeah. You know, and, and this is something that I, as somebody who's come from a, a large city and, and is still living in a sizable community here, for sure, um, we have whole ecosystems here. Oh, and so, uh, enjoy wherever you are and and so that it isn't a grass is greener thing oh i don't live beside a forest therefore you know no go and walk your neighborhood there are birds everywhere there are trees everywhere and honestly in in this area especially i mean go across the river go go through the gatineau hills it's amazing but you can turn south you can turn east or west or wherever within ottawa and just go out into nature because you will find green space. Mm -hmm. You know, I know Toronto's the same, Vancouver, Victoria, even Calgary has some amazing parks. Like it is all around us and, and rightly so. Without mm -hmm. the trees, um, we wouldn't be doing as much breathing for starters. Yeah. It's a great way to reconnect. And it's, it's a way to also, um, I feel that, well, not just me, but to, in order to be creative, we have to be relaxed. And so being in nature is a way that it just, it calms the system and uh, it connects us with our nature, our nature. Absolutely. Yeah. I just actually heard someone say it's, when we're doing it right, we walk the fine line between our passions and surrender. Mm. Yes. They both have to be there. Yes. It's kind of like the positive and negative space, right? They both yes. have to be there. That's, and that's our world of duality for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My God, we could probably talk forever. I would love to just maybe bring us up to date in what's next. I know that um, you are, or hopefully, working on the second book in the series, The Shining Fragments. Mm -hmm. And that probably will take up a, a great deal of your time in 2020. 
It'll take up some time in 2020, absolutely. Uh, it won't take up all my time because, as you know, I'm actively coaching, and that is as much a part of me as the writing, uh, helping people really live aligned, live on track uh, with their soul. That's what I'm about. And so I find that if I go too far one way or too far the other, I start to feel it. And I, and I want the pendulum to swing a little bit. And so it's, um, it's, it just seems to be the way I'm designed. Uh, so yes, I will be devoting wonderful time in 2020 to writing. I have a calendar for that. I, I know, ask me what month we're in and I know what, <laughs> what I need to have done and be doing. Um, and I will be definitely serving uh, people who show up and would love to feel like, you know, life is on track. Life is aligned and where it should be. And things are, you know, that feeling of growth. Yeah. I know it's such a, cl a cliche, you're either growing or you're dying. We've all heard that one 50 times, but it's because there's truth to it. Um, so we always wanna be living on that green edge. And uh, the novels take me there, certainly. Um, so do my clients, so do the people who are amazing and come to work with me and, you know, I learn, I learn a lot serving, um, and it's just a wonderful, it, to me, it feels like the right balance. So that's probably all I have to say on that, unless you want to ask <laughs> anything else. <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to say, what I wanted our audience to see there, yeah. okay, you are a multi-potentialite and mm. you're not at any point did you say oh you have to do this or you have to do that that's what I wanted to get across by talking to you that it's more than okay to do a number of things mm -hmm. and do them very well as you do and, and oh, being, thank you. having your your coaching clients being able to live into their creativity and yes. and passion yeah. and, and be fully immersed, I think that's got to be an incredible gift. It's really beautiful. And I feel uh, very honored, frankly, to mentor people uh, and in becoming who they're called to become. I mean, that's, it's like, yeah, it's one of the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things, really. Um, yeah, and as far as the multi-potentialite piece goes, this was something that I discovered not so long ago, actually, because I think we are so raised in this part of the world with the master's model. Yeah. You, you know, you, you have to... Um, you, you, be, you commit yourself to one thing and that is your passion. And it, that's the whole enchilada. And 
that used to perplex me even as a child because I loved to sing, I loved playing instruments, I loved drawing, painting, acting, writing, um, public speaking. Like there were a whole lot of things that I loved and the thing that scared me most actually growing up was that I would have to choose. Choosing acting initially was not so difficult because it was social. So it was an, it was a way of being in stories and also meeting people and kind of entering those worlds. Um, ultimately writing has been that for me as well. Uh, but the idea that I would have to choose just then when I did see, here's another piece. When I chose to be a teacher, it was a practical decision. And I think, um, I, I think my skill set lined up very well with it. And I, and I believe that it was an exchange of gifts. I believe that teaching for 20 years at a beautiful school institutionally grew me in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise grown um, doing anything else. And I would never trade it, actually. It was, a, it was an amazing assignment. And yet, when I first went into it, it was almost like a period of mourning because in my psyche, I thought, that's it. I've given up all my other options because all my eggs have to be in this basket. It wouldn't be until my second decade of teaching that I figured out how I could have a creative life and still have my day job and serve my day job which was serving a multiple, you know, a multitude of purposes <laughs> at that point. Um, and, and that was something that I actually had to decide for at a certain point. It was something I had to realize that I could actually write a novel and have a full-time job. I had to realize that. And then once I realized it, I had to decide for it, that I was going to do that and structure for it. But the young woman version of me could never, I would never have seen that as a possibility. And now that as it turns out, I am, you know, it's funny because at a certain point I said, okay, I'm leaving teaching and I'm moving into writing and this is what I'm doing. And then, you know, literally within two years I was coaching. So that could also be construed as teaching. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And, and, you you know, but I never would have put things together that I would love to do this when I was inside the institutional model. Nevertheless, here I am. And it just, it just seems to be something that I honor within myself that seeks to emerge. And so I'm humble to it. I don't try to mess with it. It is who I am. It's who I am. And, and what changed was the subject matter. Now I teach people transformation and I teach people uh, a very highly creative process. And I, the, the only way I can do that is by walking my own talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, that's a really important point because sometimes I, like you as a child, I, I was terrified that someone was going to make me choose. How do I choose when I want to try everything? And, you know, unfortunately at 20, it was all taken out of my hands for quite some time. It was no longer able to make the choices, which in a way, I think I just sort of surrendered to what was happening. So I didn't have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it took a very long time to understand that, you know what? I don't have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. I can do a number of the things that I really love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Absolutely. It's just, if you can dream it, you can do it. Um, and it's a matter of finding that harmony. It's not always balance, yeah. but it's, it's a matter of, of finding that structure that serves the vision. And it's a process of experimentation. Um, at this point, when you're, you know, if you're somebody who realizes, okay, I want to be in this, but I also really have this passion and I want to realize this passion and I have this project that I want to manifest. I want to bring it into fruition. Um, it can actually be really, really deeply helpful to be working with a mentor at that point, because Absolutely. when we come to those moments, we don't see our own blind spots. And even if we're in a position where we're helping others, uh, we don't always see our own blind spots. So somebody else can whisper, you know, yeah. what if you did this or um, listen to yourself, <laughs> listen to what you just said, you know, it's very, very beneficial. So as I create uh, as a writer, as I, as I coach others in creating whatever that form of creation is, it doesn't have to be artistic creation. I am always in some shape or form, I'm always on the receiving end of some kind of coaching myself. It's just the way it works. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Coaches and mentors are critical mm -hmm. um, to, to making sure that you are serving well and serving your passion well. Mm. Yeah. Yes, in fact, this morning, um, in a little bit of a window of time I had this morning, I, I actually started to do something that I'm going to be having people who work with me do, and I'll give some time to this at the upcoming events that I have. Um, and that is going into a 10 year review. Yes. A 10 year review, looking back over the past 10 years, my goodness, uh, wow, do this. It, what you will prove to yourself is just how amazing you are, how, what you've accomplished. We often, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, we connect the dots looking backwards, right? But we don't see them looking ahead. Well, we want to be able to see that 10 year journey and celebrate the wins of that journey and also get really curious about what, didn't go that well in that journey yeah. in order to really highlight the learning, you know, what, what are the, what are the things that I'm still most energized about that I've done in the past decade? What are the things that, you know, were just completely brand new and blew me away? Where did I have my steepest learning curve? Where did it not quite come together? You know, or, you know, in fact, maybe what really just felt like a crushing blow at the time? Yeah. What's the learning in that? What's the learning in that? Um, and sometimes what your greatest achievement was could mm -hmm. have come from the greatest failure. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Sometimes those so-called failures, you know, we talk about turning stumbling blocks into stepping stones. Yeah. Uh, it's a handy image. You know, it's, it's pretty much um, a common image. But it, it's a real, it's a truthful one that you can take any content. You have complete control over your perception. And if there are stories in the past that still hold a negative charge, that means you've got a gift to go back and claim from that story. So you go back and claim it. 
Um, and where I was going with this, apropos of your comment about mentors and, yes. uh, and so forth, was that when I looked at the trajectory of the past 10 years for me, where I saw the most accelerated periods of transformation was when I was really working very directly with mentors and coaches. Absolutely. And so that's just something, you know, that I thought was really kind of cool to, to be able to now with this much perspective, because 10 years ago, I wasn't coaching, right? To go back yeah. and actually map it out and see, wow, you know, yeah. look at what happened in that two year span when I was investing in, in my vision and doing these very particular things with people who knew a lot more about the, the um, systems for success than I did at that time. So you always want to be looking for uh, ways to up your game. Um, and certainly mentoring is one of them. Working with a mentor is one of them. Reading, um, feeding your soul, listening. Uh, what, what I did was I, I made this extensive list and I put it in the same categories that I use in my vision workshops. I had, um, uh, vocation or career, time and money, freedom, relationships, health, and with health, full spectrum health, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And <clears throat> I just started in each of those buckets going through the last 10 years and, and writing things out. And then when I had all of the buckets as full as I, you know, I drew the line at a certain point. Um, then I went with a highlighting pen and I went back to the, the points that still have electricity for me when I yeah. think about, wow, that happened, that really happened. And I, and I put my green highlighter through those ones. Um, when I was doing this, naturally what arose in me was a desire to set goals yes. for where the next level will be. And I went with a yellow highlighter and I went into those areas with a yellow highlighter and just marked, you know, this is where I feel like I'm, this is my next level. This is where I want to go in the next 10 years. How much overlap was there between? Um, in what sense? Yellow. What do you mean? I mean, you said. Oh, the, the green and the yellow? Yeah. That's what interesting. What still jazzes you and, and, and where you're going now? Um, in some respects, there would be, in some particular areas, there would be overlap for sure, um, and in others not. Because what you will notice when you go into your, and do your 10 years is you'll, you'll find that <clears throat> certain areas of life, you know, there was a nice steady burn, right? This, yeah, like, you know, I maintained this or I, there was yeah. this. Yeah. And actually, that's a really good thing to be aware of. You know, where has there been a bit of a plateau yeah. over the last several years? Because sometimes that's where your yellow naturally comes up. Yeah. Always the question is, what would I love, right? What would I love in that domain? You know, what would I love? Such a good point. Yeah. But, but I do think that where you find most of your green or your, you know, the electricity, um, you're still going to want to grow in those areas because that's really your soul lighting up on the board talking to you. 
Absolutely. And that's, that's really what I was getting at. I was hoping you, you would say there were some areas where they did oh, yeah. intersect, which is, which is great. The other really important thing, I think, um, I started mine yesterday. I oh, <laughs> like could. Yeah. But because it's the end of a decade, Yes. It's even more important. You know, people can look back 10 years whenever they want, but the fact is we've come to the end of, of the teens, the 20 teens, yes. and going forward in this new decade, it's a really great chance to, you know, somewhat like the Phoenix, mm -hmm. you know, come out of the ashes, take it all, take what you need, burn the rest. And, That's right. That's know, right. More fatalist, I think. And what we tend to do, I find what most people tend to do is set the goals too close and too small. And so that would be something that I would encourage um, any of us to do is to really go into the heart and say, well, what would I really love? Sometimes a great exercise is to do a bucket list of 50 things. You know, what are 50 things that I would love to experience in this lifetime? Yeah. You know, until I lay my head down on the pillow for the last time, what are, what are the 50 things? And that actually can be a fair bit of work to, oh, yeah. to devote yeah. the time and really allow those ideas down. And then once you've got that list, well, what would I what would I love to have done 10 years from now? When I think about the age I'm going to be 10 years from now, um, those of us who have children, what, where they're going to be, um, uh, your grandchildren, your community, what, whatever, whatever stage any of us is at 10 years from now, we want to think, you know, truly, what would I love to have already have accomplished? Absolutely. And then, of course, it becomes reverse engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what I mean by that, right? With the calendar, it becomes reverse engineering. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think maybe what we'll do is take a few minutes and you can explain to our audience exactly what you mean by the reverse engineering. Because I think some people probably already know, yeah. but just in case. Yeah. Well, reverse engineering, what I mean by that term in this context is that... <clears throat> we begin with the end in mind. And so if I have a, a vision of myself in December of 2029, I know what stage I'm at. I know, I mean, in terms of my age and, and so forth. Um, and I write up my vision, you know, this is my life. This is my life, my 10 years from now life. And if that's truly my life 10 years from now, so you think about what you've, what you've accomplished in perhaps your vocation, what you've accomplished in terms of your um, time and money, freedom, domain, what that looks like, uh, what you're, where you're living, where, where you've traveled over the, the past 10 years, um, where you've devoted your time, which is your most valuable currency, right? Because it doesn't yeah. come back. <laughs> so uh, all of that, when you look at that 10 year mark, you've got memories 10 years from now. And then you, you ask yourself, okay, well, if that's where I'm at in 2029, then where am I at 
five years from now. And then you, you write that vision up, sort of looking, working backwards. And then it works, you, you can go to three years from now and one year from now. So that you have a sense of being on the trajectory. You don't know how it's all going to come together. We never know how it's all going to come together. That's what stops most people in building a dream is they, they want to have the how all figured out. I tell you, Elaine, we're talking, you asked me at the beginning of the call, how did you come to Ottawa? <laughs> I would never have known at the no. beginning of the 2010s that I would be living here, that I would be in this role, working on my fourth book, um, you know, there are so many details of my life that I could not have foreseen in 2010. I'm doing a lot better job now of actually putting those longer range visions out there and then voting for the next steps. All I need to be able to see are my next steps. Yeah. So I know my visions at the different, different increments of time, and I know what I can do now. And as long as I'm serving the vision, yeah. I trust that things will show up for me. And, and, and not, that, yeah, I was just saying, not being slavishly attached to a particular outcome. To, and to a particular way. Yes. Yeah. The how and, and it doesn't really matter. The how doesn't matter. The, um, what we're aiming for matters. Yes. Um, I think that where the attachment issue can become problematic for people is when they're attached to it happening in a particular time frame. Yeah. You know, it's got to happen this week or it's got to happen. I think we can really cause ourselves a lot of stress. Okay. And then we get into that lower energy state, which isn't conducive to creating. So yeah. there you are back walking in nature again <laughs> to <Yep>. rebalance <laughs> things, right? You want it, you want the most uh, optimal creating place is high participation, low attachment. You want to, you want to, and, and ironically when, or perhaps paradoxically is a better word. Um, when we have a high level of participation, i.e. we're in action for that dream and we have low attachment to the immediate results, actually that's an indicator that we have great faith in the ultimate results. And faith is necessary in all of this. Absolutely. You have to have, you have to believe in your own vision. Absolutely. And yourself and your, and all the, the power working within you and all around you, because you got to trust that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a beautiful, big concept and a great place for us to roll this on home. So, I always ask my guests to leave our audience with one little thing that you use in your life on a daily basis that is either personal or business that you can pass along that our audience can use. Yeah. Well, this reminds me actually of a conversation I was having with a client this morning um, apropos of journaling. And so I have a morning journaling practice where every morning before I start, <clears throat> almost every morning, uh, I have a routine for how I set my state for the day. And among the things that I do in my journal, there are two things that I would just highlight um, for our purposes here, because I think if I give too many, it, it just becomes overwhelming. One is, and you'll, you'll certainly relate to this one, Elaine, I know you will. 
um, gratitudes. Yeah. Writing gratitudes is a way of dialing up energetically to the frequency of prosperity. It's, it's a way of raising the energy. And you want to be, you don't want to have it be um, not perfunctory things, yes. fresh, new, interesting things, but it can be simple things. It can be like a warm cup of tea. That, it's, it's all about the feeling. Yeah. So from that place of generating that high calibration feeling of understanding that, you know, I woke up this morning, not everybody did. And this is a pretty amazing day that I get to live. And this day will never come again. When we wake up in that kind of state, when we generate that state in the journal, ten, I don't know, five things, 10 things, but make that a practice. Then write what you're creating today. Actually, you can apply this concept of vision right to your day. Yeah. So it isn't a to-do list. It's different from a to-do list, but they're okay too. But this is more of you as the creator, you as the artist of your day. This is who I'm being when I walk into that meeting. This is who I'm being when I show up to, you know, speak for a group, when I show up to people on a call, when I, whatever it is, you fill, you fill in the blank that's specific to you, but you come with a real intention to, be the person in your vision and always in that process of creating my day on the page before I live it, making sure that I'm taking action and making sure that there's at least something in there that is uncomfortable because that's how we often do our best work <laughs> is um, by being outside of that comfort zone. You know, we want to be always just, just, it doesn't have to be vastly up beyond the comfort zone, but doing something. It's just enough to make it a little uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt said, do one thing every day that scares you. That scares you. Yes. And do it in service of your vision. And, and that's a, that's a powerful thing. Absolutely. I think that's a, an incredibly powerful way to wrap up. I want to say thank you so much, Robin. I really appreciate this. And I want to say, as usual, you'll be able to find all of the incredible links and social links as well to Robin on her page on the BBP TV site. And I will see you next time we're together. Elaine Lindsay and my guest, Robin Blackburn McBride. Thank you, Elaine. Today, amazing. Brought to you by BBP TV Show and Truel Social, helping small biz navigate the digital world.